have their image that they're more sustainable for the environment and they take care of the community. Their posters are always about like, we care about the community and you know, this local farmer, we support him by buying our potatoes from him, but like, but you could take care of this local community, your workers, <laughs> we're the local community. They're also known for, ironically, their management, paying their management really well. Well, the thing is, Burgerville's making a profit and um, they're expanding. I think that I'm poor because they're rich and they're rich because I'm poor and I don't think that it should be that way. Like everyone knows you can't really live on minimum wage anywhere in America now. It's almost impossible. I work hard and uh, I do a good job. I just want to be paid enough that, you know, and it's not such a struggle. There's a campaign going on and it's going to change some things. Well, we're trying to start a union, and we're trying to make Burgerville a better place. It's the Burgerville Workers Union. We are a group of fast food workers that are forming a union and fighting for a $5 raise and uh, better respect in our workplace and healthier working conditions. More flexible scheduling, giving people the hours they want or need. You know, basics, basic things we deserve. We want to feel respected on the job, like we have more of a voice. I just want to do my job and be paid a living wage. So we should get paid for the efforts that we're putting in instead of, oh, well, this is what the state said minimum wage is, so let's pay them that. And that was a little bit from a video about the campaign by Burgerville workers in Portland, Oregon, to get a union, which they did in fact, pull off. The first union, they say, and I don't disagree with them, and I haven't found any evidence to say otherwise, the first union inside a fast food chain all across the nation. And you'll hear from two of the Burgerville workers today. I'll also have a really interesting chat on immigration from an immigration judge, an insight inside the system something you've probably not heard before. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for February 6th, 2019. And the usual reminder, this podcast is brought to you in part by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and promotes mass transit. It's also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. And of course, you know already, you can hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m. You can now also get the podcast on Spotify. Besides our larger supporters, we also obviously depend on our small financial contributors. So please go over to workinglife.org click on the podcast tab and become one of those small financial sponsors by clicking on that Patreon tab and doing whatever level you can afford. For the past few years, there has been a nationwide campaign under the banner Fight for 15. And you've probably seen or heard about the Fight for 15. Maybe you've actually marched in some of their demonstrations and rallies. The campaign, as the name signals, is aimed at hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour for all minimum wage workers, who today 
when they're working for the $7.25 federal minimum wage are essentially working in poverty. And that movement, the Fight for 15, was really ignited by fast food workers who were marching for higher wages as well as the right to have a union. And a reminder to everyone, as I often point out, the minimum wage should really be $20 an hour, at least if you take into account productivity over the last 30 years. So even the demand for $15 an hour, which is a significant increase and a significant improvement, is really just a down payment for what minimum wage workers should be earning if they were really getting a fair share of what their sweat of the brow was producing and creating the value they create for every single company. Now, part of the challenge for fast food workers working for big chains like McDonald's is that the big ones operate with a franchise model. And that means that each location is considered when you think about forming a union as an independently owned company or at least an independently owned operation, which makes it harder then for workers to wrap their arms around an entire company like McDonald's. You really have to organize the independent owners one by one, so it's a real challenge. But there is now a union in a fast food chain. In Portland, Oregon, workers who cook, serve, and clean up the joint at the hamburger chain Burgerville have successfully organized three of the company's locations under the National Union election procedures set out in federal labor law. And they have in fact been recognized by the National Labor Relations Board as the legitimate bargaining voice for the workers. Under the banner of the industrial workers of the world, the workers are now locked in a battle with the company just to get a first contract. And it's a tough fight because the company is using the classic corporate union busting tactics that all companies use after workers who go through an incredible journey to try to win the union election. After that, what companies do is delay, delay, delay all in order to try to frustrate workers who are looking to be treated fairly and get a first contract. To talk more about the Burgerville effort, I'm pleased to be joined by Emmett Schlentz and James Curry, two of the Burgerville workers who have been quite active in the campaign. And I guess maybe we would start, Emmett and James, with a little bit of background in a minute or so about who you guys are and how you got into working for Burgerville. And maybe I'll ask the question, how long have you been working for Burgerville? What made you decide to work there? And is this the first time you're in the fast food industry? Maybe we'll start with Emmett first. Yeah, so I uh, moved to Portland a couple of years ago. Um had a job that was great, loved it, but uh, ended up moving across town. It was taking up a lot of my time, and um, I wanted to be a writer, right? Um, so I needed uh, a job that would be easier to schedule on my writing. So um, I got a job at Burgerville and knew about the uh, union campaign um, before I got here. Uh, because I'd been following it in, in the news. Um, the campaign had been public uh, for quite a while before I got hired. 
Um, so I ended up joining up with the union shortly after I started um, at Burgerville. I've worked there for about a year and a half, I think, going on a year and a half. And I, I've never worked in fast food before. I worked at a grocery store. I worked on a boat, but not in fast food. And what do you do, Emmett, at the at Burgerville? I uh, I'm an opener. I get there at like six in the morning, um, and I work drive through mostly. Um, so I'm I'm the one handing out orders in the drive through. And James, uh, tell me uh, qu- quickly how you got into there and um, what's your background a little bit. Totally. Um, a similar story. I I had been living in Portland um, for several years. I graduated college, um, and I was like doing random jobs. Like I was having trouble figuring out what the hell I was doing. Um, I went through a period of unemployment, um, and I literally like asked around like uh, any leads on jobs, like any job, um, and a friend. Uh, mentioned Burgerville um, because I, I knew a lot of people who were working at Burgerville um, and were involved with the union. Um, and so I like got involved, uh, got a job um, and yeah, did that. And I've been working there for almost two years now. Um, and I work like the grill, uh, usually like evenings. Um, I do the pre-close, you know, I, I clean the grill, I do the deck scrub all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And James, had you ever been in a union before? And I'll ask the same question of Emmett in a second as well. I think, uh, briefly I joined the, I joined UFCW. I think, I don't think I ever, I worked at Safeway for like a couple months and then the union approached me and I was down. Um, but before this, I've, I had very little experience, almost close to zero experience with unions. Mm-hmm. And Emmett yourself. Uh, I had never been in unions before. Um, I've never, I've never really worked a job where there had been a union presence. Um, but I come from, um, a big time union family back in Rhode Island. My dad was in, or my grandfather was in IBEW, um, for most of his life. And he always says that, uh, the reason he's able to live remotely comfortably, uh, in his eighties is because of the union. Uh, that's a great point. And what you remind me of is that so often younger people, and I can sort of tell by your voices, I haven't met either of you, that younger people um, younger people don't necessarily experience a union, partly because when they get into the workforce, because the rate of unionization is so low now, it's uncommon or less common than, say, your grandfather, Emmett, who was in a union probably most of his working life, it's more common not to find a union in the private sector. And the second thing that's pretty awful is that unions and unionization, the history of unions, are never taught in school. So a lot of younger people come into the workforce literally having no idea what a union is about. Yeah, um, I have a a couple of things to say in response to that. Um, For the second point to start out with, uh, rings uh, really close to home. Um, one of the longest um, industrial strikes in the United States history happened in Rhode Island in the 80s, where I'm from. Uh, um, I had I had no idea. Um, and my hometown, where I grew up, um, was a mill town. Um, there was a like a long series of strikes and like hardcore organizing going on in the early 20th century, um, and I had no idea. Um, it wasn't really talked about. Um, but, uh, as to your, as to the first point about like young people not having opportunity to join unions, um, that does, it does appear to be changing. Um, if I recall, um, there's a recent article that came out, 
uh, I think it was last year, about sort of demographics of unions. And in, I believe over the course of 2018, it was the first year in a very long time that uh, union unionization rates had gone up, that more people were joining unions. Um, and one of the driving sort of demographic forces behind that is young people, is millennials, um, who like typically now are expressing a lot more interest in unions and are joining more unions than um, than people were only 10 years ago. Interesting. And I don't think that's contradictory to saying in parallel that six and a half percent are unionized in the private sector. And so it's just hard to look around among your friends and people who are working. Those folks just don't are not in unions because just of the numbers, the percentage of people in unions. And that has less to do with people's desire to be in a union as much as it is to companies being so anti-union, opposing unions, and the law being so difficult, as you know, trying to organize a union, which is a good segue for us to now talk a little bit about your campaign itself. You've now won recognition, as I understand it, at three of the stores in Portland that Burgerville has, and I assume you may be organizing at other ones in the near future. Tell us, and I'll start with Emmett, and then we'll jump to James. What's been the experience and how have you been doing the organizing that led to these victories? Um, the experience has been has been great, right? There's not, I'd say the thing that um, makes us different, the thing, the thing that distinguishes the Burgerville Workers Union, or one of the many things, uh, is that there isn't, we don't have union staff, right? There isn't, um, a set of staffers working at the union hall sort of coordinating this, this union effort. Um, it's led by workers like me and Jimmy, um, and, uh, community supporters who like come out and donate and volunteer a lot of their time, um, to help us along. Um, and I think because of that sort of volunteer emphasis and worker centered emphasis, the organizing, um, centers around workers relationships with each other, as opposed to um, a, a union uh, that isn't in the workplace um, coming in trying to unionize. Uh, and it's not that I'm against that other model, um, but given the extraordinarily high turnover in the fast food un- uh, industry and also the sort of like scattered nature of the, the working population, um, people who work at our Burgerville um, live all over the sort of greater Portland area. There's not like a concentrated group of workers who live in the same place. Um, would make that other model of like external organizer very difficult. And I think it's part of the reason why it hasn't been done before. Um, and our emphasis on like relationships between workers and building relationships between workers um, has contributed to our success in, in no small part. Uh, and that's the most in- inspiring thing. Um, so while it hasn't happened at our store yet, uh, talking to talking to Burgerville Corporate there, um, when other stores have gone on strike, it's not just like abstract workers from other locations who I'm watching walk off the job. It's like my friends. It's people that I've spent a lot of time with, um, people that I've like planned with and struggled with. Um, and I, uh, in our strike in February, last February, um, I cried every single time workers walked off because it was such a powerful emotional experience because these were people that I knew and had relationships with. And James, has that been your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is all relationship based. Um, and we, I don't know, just like a thing to say about that, right. Is that I've, I've been working at the shop I work at for almost two years. 
Um, turnover is really high, right? Um, not as high as some other shops, but it's high. Um, but what's incredible about the, the style of organizing that we do um, is that the IWW has the saying uh, that we organize the worker and not the workplace. Um, and that's really, that's really how it pans out. Like there are folks who work at our shop, uh, join the union, um, and then leave. Um, and we, we still keep in touch with them, you know, and many of them like become members of the IWW and literally remain, um, in our union, um, through that means. Um, and I think it's just really powerful to see how these relationships are actually very deep relationships and lasting relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, the IWW has a history of being a very radical union in a, in a good way. And so I'm wondering whether the attraction to people who are working at Burgerville, how did it split down between people who came to the union or came to Burgerville with already kind of a political orientation? Or were there people simply who were just simply maybe not political, but were just trying to make a decent living and get a wage hike? Let's start with you, James. What do you think about that? I think people join the unions for a large variety of reasons. Um, I know, I know in my experience, like people like I've signed up to the union. Um, it's yeah. I, like it's hard for me to say like in a sort of definitive way, like the difference between that, between those two things, because also at the same time, um, when people join um, and they don't necessarily share a radical politics, uh, I mean, that's something that often changes over time. Um, and I think really, really how I feel about that is that our politics are grounded in our material reality. You know, like our struggle against anti-capitalism is not distinct um, from the struggle of our coworkers to get a raise, um, to have better living conditions. So, um, yeah, that's that's my perspective on that. Emmett, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would I would want to echo a lot of what Jimmy said. Um, and add that like we are BBW is a it's like a big tent union. Um, there's a people with a lot of different political ideas um, mm -hmm. who I work with and who work at other Burgervilles. Um, and there are right there there are many of us like Jimmy and I who who are more radical, uh, and there are people who are not. Um, and I think that one of the interesting dynamics that emerges from this sort of like um, the myriad of political perspectives is that. I think it's a benefit for the IWW in that uh, we are seen as these like very intense, very serious people who are organizing uh, because we really believe in it, right? Like it's not like a pet project. It's not a hobby. Like this is, these are, our, this is our life. This is what we're dedicating ourselves to um, because we have this like broad, incisive vision about what we think is wrong and what we want to change. And to the people who don't necessarily share that, that political vision, what they see is that we're crazy and we're going to fight like hell for them. Um, we're going to, we're, we're willing to do whatever we got to do um, to, to make a better world possible. So let's bring it down from the radical vision and the broad um, ideas into the concrete nature. Cause people really care in some way about, okay, what are we trying to get here? Emmett, let's start with you and maybe you can summarize for my listeners. What are the demands of the Burgerville workers generally, either on the question of wages or scheduling or things that are concrete things that you're trying to get at the bargaining table? Sure. Uh, we got we got a whole bunch. I'll just try to hit the um, 
the most pointed or like sexiest demands. Um, the biggest one, obviously, uh, is a living wage. Um, gentrification is causing rents and food prices to go up all over Portland. Uh, minimum wage, despite it going up, is like not remotely keeping up with prices. Is that what you're paid at Burgerville, a minimum wage? Yeah, we're we're paid minimum wage or just above. I'm paid just above minimum wage. Um, presumably, so the company can say, "Oh no, we don't pay the minimum wage." Um, <laughs> and you get do you get a, do you get any kind of healthcare coverage or any kind of contribution to a pension or any other benefits? Uh, there is employee healthcare at Burgerville. Um, one of our demands is to improve it. Um, so it used to be, from what I understand from talking to uh, some of my coworkers who have worked there for a long time, uh, the healthcare coverage at Burgerville used to be pretty good uh, and used to be available for any worker who works uh, an average of more than an average of 20 hours a week, right? Um, but a couple years ago, they both changed healthcare providers, as I understand it, and raised the hours requirement to 30 hours a week which is much more difficult for uh, Burgerville workers to reach. I, I rarely work um, 30 hours a week, if ever. And I'd love, I'd love to, um, but my, like the, my, I just don't get scheduled for it. And most of our coworkers don't get scheduled for it. So one of our, one of our demands is both like better coverage, better healthcare coverage, and bringing the hour requirement back down to 20 hours, if not no hour, hour requirement at all. And wages, what are you all trying to achieve there? Uh, five dollar an hour raise, which would bring uh, you to which would bring you to what roughly? I believe minimum wage right now is twelve dollars an hour in Portland. Jimmy, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, it's around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would bring us up to seventeen dollars an hour. Um, which right is a is a that's a union job. That's a union standard. It's close to that. It's certainly better. I often say in this program that if you actually looked at the minimum wage and what it is, at least at the federal level, what it should be, if you take into account people's productivity and how hard they've worked over the last 30 years, it should be at least $20 an hour. So 17, you're definitely you're definitely getting close to that. And it's certainly above the, the cry that has been sweeping the nation for $15 an hour. So it would certainly set a great standard. Is there any other aspect, James, of the requirement demands that Emmett did mention that you want to add? Yeah. Um, so, uh, we've, uh, had this demand for Google to stop using programs like E-Verify. Um, so E-Verify is this program, um, that a lot of employers use that, uh, checks workers, uh, social security numbers. Um, and if there are any problems with that, um, they report those workers to ICE. Now, Burgerville does not use E-Verify. Um, but they use a program that does the exact same thing as you verify. Um, so we, we're uh, at the bargaining table calling on them to stop using that and to stop collaborating with ICE. Um, other demands, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff uh, that I can't remember at the moment. So let's, um, in our final part of this discussion, let's talk a little bit about what's happening concretely. Um, not surprisingly, as I've read and researched what you've been doing initially, as I understand it, Burgerville, I wouldn't say necessarily embraced the union, but they weren't outwardly hostile in an aggressive way, at least when the first store was organized. But as I understand it now in the more recent times, as you've organize the second and third stores, the companies become much more hostile and aggressive. Is that a fair observation? I would say, I would say uh, that Burgerville has been aggressive since the very beginning. Mm, okay. Um, and this is something we don't, we don't mention a lot, but um, at our pickets, at the early pickets, 
um, they used to have armed security guards. And I mean security guards armed with guns um, until we called them out and they stopped doing that. Um, but that was that was years ago. That was like well before um, we even had uh, elections on our horizon as a strategic move. Um, so it's something I try to emphasize is that um, our entire experience with Burgerville um, has been, um, they've been hostile to us um, for years now, for many years now. And you mentioned that um, because the IWW is based on a worker-centered model and doesn't have a ton of staff, I'm curious, when you sit at the bargaining table, it's obviously the workers, which is a good thing. Do you have any kind of legal expertise or support that helps you, let's face it, Burgerville's got probably a ton of lawyers that will write up very complicated and intentionally complicated potential offers or ultimate agreements. And I'm wondering whether because of labor laws and things like that, you have any kind of resource, legal resources that assist you. Um, yeah, I, I sit on a bargaining table um, for a long time. I was doing it just to support my, my friends and my coworkers at other Burgervilles, but now I do it um, to be one of the representatives from, from my store, the Hawthorne store. Um, so I know the lawyers who help us out. They're great. Kate and John from the Northwest Workers Justice Project, in, which is a, um, I, believe it's a, I believe it's a nonprofit. What I know is that we, we don't pay them because we don't have any money. Um, so they're, they're volunteering their time um, to help us out. Uh, and they're terrific. They've, they've provided really sort of invaluable support at the bargaining table to get us around um, Burgerville Corporate's legal shenanigans. And so to wrap up, let's uh, maybe put a minute or so for each of you to say, where are we at at the bargaining table and what should my listeners know is going to happen from your perspective? And let's start with Emmett and then we'll have James wrap up. Sure. So uh, we began bargaining um, in the summer. Uh, We've had all of our proposals out to the company by, I believe, July at the very latest. Uh, And we're still waiting to hear back from a number of our proposals, most importantly, the economic proposals. Um, so we don't know the company's position on our like wage proposals. We don't know the company's position on um, a number of other like proposals really crucial to the union's vision of what the workplace should look like. Uh, hopefully, we'll hear back from them soon. Um, but I, uh, given how they've responded to other proposals, am nervous that it will not be sufficient. Uh, so what... Listeners should look forward to um, is a fight um, around uh, living wage, around sanctuary for undocumented workers, around health and safety in the workplace. Because that's what it's going to take to get a good contract. Uh, it's not going to be negotiated out at the bargaining table, or it will be in part, but a lot of it is going to be a fight, a struggle. And delay, delay, delay is the common, as you know, corporate tactic just to frustrate people from getting a decent contract, even when they've already voted under the National Labor Relations Board to get have a union, have a union represent them, and to be part of a union. Delay, delay is a very common corporate tactic. And so, James, you have the last word. What's your sense of what's happening at the bargaining table and where this goes from here? Yeah, I mean, delay, delay, delay is exactly right. Um, they, Burgerville loves to waste our time. Um, and I don't, I have a little bit of anxiety about what I can or can't say about bargaining. Um, because as you, as you mentioned, uh, legal law is very confusing and, in my opinion, disempowering for workers. But I do want to put out there that um, we as a union have gone on strike multiple times before, and we are ready to go on strike um, whenever necessary. 
Um, and there's also an active boycott on all stores. Um, so I just want Burgerville to know, if you're listening to this, um, we are serious, uh, and you know we're serious, and we want a good contract. So it's indisputable that the individual who sits in the Oval Office is a hardcore racist. And I don't make any bones about this. I don't do the usual caveating and, frankly, the spineless pronunciations by politicians and talking heads on TV that they don't know what's in the heart of the man. That's BS. This man is a hardcore racist, and he's demonstrated it over the long arc of his life. The country has seen this up quite close, including last night in the State of the Union address, as the wall continues to be a symbol for demonizing and targeting undocumented immigrants and people of color. Now, I wanted to bring here a slightly different angle on the immigration question, and one from the eyes of a judge who is trying to administer the law in the immigration courts. The key insight here, as you will hear from my guest, Ashley Tabador, is that the system is perverted from the outset. It sits within the Justice Department, which, just think about it, is run essentially by a prosecutor who works in the executive branch, not the judiciary. That is the job of the attorney general to be a prosecutor, whether that's a Democrat or a Republican. That is, they're supposed to prosecute rather than act as a judicial arbiter. And the immigration system really is in a state of collapse. It has, and I hope you're sitting down when you hear this number, 810,000 pending cases. And that caseload has to be handled by 400 judges, just 400 judges in the entire country. As Ashley recently wrote in a piece for Bloomberg News, and now I'm quoting her, the judges who handle our quote-unquote non-detained dockets routinely carry anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 or more cases on their calendars, which translates to being in court every day, morning and afternoon, with schedules that are booked two, three, or more years in advance. Ashley is an immigration judge in Los Angeles and an adjunct professor at the UCLA School of Law, but she's speaking here to us today in her capacity as the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, which is actually a voluntary organization of immigration judges and the recognized representative of those judges for collective bargaining purposes. So the first thing, we've before we talk about these incredibly concrete things and the immigration system, how did you get into this? Did, were you always aiming to be an immigration judge, or did you get there in a roundabout way? So I myself, I'm a refugee from Iran. Mm. We were about, or I was about 10 years old when we had to flee the country and come to the United States. And once I came to the United States and, and was introduced to the concept of separation of powers and, and our 
constitution, I was just absolutely taken aback and just fell in love with the whole um, with the whole concept. And since then, it was my passion to become a public servant mm. and and get involved with litigation. So I always felt that I wanted to be a lawyer and be in the court. And of course, once you're a litigator and you're in the courtroom, usually the aspirational goal from there is to become a judge. And I started out as a law clerk with the immigration court during my second year in law school and was introduced to these set of amazing judges and amazing group of people. And as they say, the rest is history. And was it immigration that drew you because you were an immigrant yourself? And the notion that people who come from different countries, especially if they're fleeing oppression or some sort of economic situation, that they're in particularly desperate situation or have challenges? I think it was more about looking at the government as a source of protection of um, rights of the underserved class. So I always felt that the being a public servant and being part of that um, system would be a way that I can give back for a country that has given so much to me. Mm -hmm. And then when the immigration court uh, law clerkships opened up, I think it just turned out to be a coincidence of synergy. And when I became involved and saw what it does and saw the impact on people's lives, I was hooked. Mm -hmm. So before we started recording, you were telling me these amazing statistics, amazing in a sense of stunning and astonishing and in, in some way horrific, the kinds of backlogs and the kind of system that so many immigrants who are coming, especially people who are undocumented, have to face. So let's talk a little bit about those numbers, the number of judges, the backlog, and so people get a sense of the scale. Sure. So I think the basic uh, statistics go as follows. We have about 400 judges in about 64 courts across the nation. But for these 400 judges, they are responsible now for over 810,000 pending cases. That itself is a staggering number, and it's been growing exponentially. Just two years ago, we had under 300 judges. So this administration has hired about 120 judges in two years. It's the largest expansion of the court that we've seen in recent history. But in spite of that, our backlog has continued to grow. Uh, about two years ago, it was over 600,000 cases. We're now over 800,000 cases. There's a lot of uh, complicated factors that contribute to that, but one of the major factors that we see as a contributing factor to this growing backlog is frankly the structural defect of having an immigration court in the Justice Department. And why is that? Why is it a structural defect? And if you had, and the second question I'll ask you right away is, if you had your magic wand and the crystal ball, you said, this is how it should be, how would you recreate it? Sure, sure. I think a lot of people, when you talk about the word judge and a court, they make certain assumptions about that. And, and it's an accurate assumption generally when it comes to our American judicial systems is that if you're going to go before a judge and if you're going to go to a court, you expect that the judge will be an impartial decision maker and that the court would be separate and apart from the prosecutor or from any of the parties that come before it. The immigration court system is not like that. Our judges are supposed to be impartial decision makers and are given that power. However, our judges are put in the uh, court system that's governed by the attorney general, who is our number one chief federal prosecutor. So we have a system that's ultimately accountable to a prosecutor, run by a prosecutor, and in many ways used by a prosecutor for, for law enforcement purposes. And the attorney general doesn't operate on his or her own, in this case, on his own. They're in some way executing a policy of an administration. They're not just some independent looking at the law. 
it's policy and there's politics to that, especially with this administration. So that filters down. Correct. And that's been what we have seen, regardless of which administration, that the administration uses the court in furtherance of their law enforcement prerogatives. So without commenting even on the wisdom of that, it's very easy to look just two years ago and see how the pendulum was all the way on one side, and within two years, it's now all the way on the other side. Now, for- Meaning pendulum in what sense? What in the way mean? that the court has been used for law enforcement purposes, because the law enforcement prerogatives two years ago was so are so different than what they are now. Let's, let's expand on that. You mean two years ago, under the Obama administration, Correct. there was more of a sense of we have to treat these people as human beings, not enemies, not someone that people that we're trying to throw out of the country. Um, this is my interpretation. You can disagree or put it in a more um, kind way. And in this administration, it's more as if these are all, well, I'm going to say what the president has said. They're murderers, thieves, people coming from other countries. And so we have to get rid of them. They're somehow, they're foreign bodies in our country. Get rid of them. Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know what I'm trying to say. I think, you know, to to, to, to your point is that the narratives that each administration has taken on this issue has been in many ways um, in conflict with one another. Now- This is why you're a good judge, by the way. <laughs> you know how to explain this in more normal, calm circumstances rather than my heated rhetoric, but go ahead. But, but it's, it's to sort of put it in context is that we're not here to really debate <clears throat> The wisdom of the law enforcement priorities, that's that's something that we think belongs outside the court. And when the court is being used as, as pawn or has been used as a political tool, that's what compromises the integrity of the court. And frankly, that's what's been con contributing largely to the backlog as well. So just a few years ago, we had the administration reprioritizing everything, including reprioritizing enforcement uh, actions and including the caseload of the court. So cases take a number of months and sometimes years before they're ready. And a, and a typical judge who's handling our non-detained docket can have 4,000 or 5,000 cases on their docket. Our judges are in the courtroom morning and afternoon every day of the week. Their cases and their calendars are booked years in advance. Mm. And for a case, it takes two or three hearings before it's ready for trial. So imagine that a judge who's been diligently working every day, morning and afternoon, scheduling their cases, trying to work through all of this, these factors that they have to consider when they're moving these cases along, you know, along the docket, and then being told, we just want you now to drop everything and put these other set of cases that just came into the United States in front of the line. Well, what that does, it just turns the whole system on its head, T takes away the, the expertise of the judge in handling the docket, and then sends a very wrong message to the people because it tells the people that the judge is not the one controlling the docket. It really is the prosecutor who's controlling the docket. So I think you need to explain a little bit to my listeners and to me because Sure. I'm trying to understand how have the priorities changed? What's been put in front? Sure. So generally speaking, when somebody is put into court proceedings, just like any line, right? If somebody puts you in line, you expect that you will be the next in line and that it'll progress as uh, chronologically. In other words, 
in the order in which they were um, initiated. But imagine then as this line is going forward, now the prosecutor comes and says, actually, I'm going to reorganize the line. I'm now going to take all the people in the back of the line, and now I'm going to put them in front of the line, but not all of them, just a subgroup of them. And what subgroup was put to the front of the line? So unaccompanied children oh, were see. put in front of the line, as well as adult with children who were all apprehended at the border, mm. re what we called recent arrivals. This turned the whole docket on its head. In fact, for in Los Angeles for about a period of year, no one was hearing any cases other than these cases coming in. And so it was a, it put a big stop on cases that had been pending for years and waiting for their turn in court. And now we had to stop, start, it, start the clock all over again for these new cases. It takes time to ramp up because it takes months for these cases to get ready for trial. And it again sends the wrong message to people that this court is one that could that, that should be respected for being part of our American now I democratic principle. So essentially, if I can sum up, what you're saying is that the, this administration took its priorities of what it cared about, and that's all tied into the obsession about the wall and people who, who are the people coming, and they then went to the courts and said, we're gonna take this group, because that matches what our current concern is, we're gonna move them up front. And essentially then they manipulated the process for their own political reasons and did not allow the judicial process to unfold. Is that a fair? Yes, see, you're much better at it than I am. No, well, you, the thing is that I'm listening in my political ear, you're you're speaking in your expertise ear and a judicial ear, which is, I understand, it's a good combination. Good, yeah. So how now to sort of shift, because you wear the hat of a union leader, how does that affect your members? Because I assume this is a huge pressure on them. First of all, the backlog you just explained of 400 judges trying to deal with 800,000 plus cases, and then they come into a courtroom one day and the whole set of priorities is switched around. It's, it's extremely stressful and unnecessarily stressful because as it is, our jobs demand so much of us. We are hearing the stories of individuals who've been tortured, who've been persecuted, who are, um, who are begging to be, um, to be left alone with their families in the United States. So, so these are really, really taxing cases on our judges to begin with. And then to introduce this, this unnecessary use of the court and, and pressure on the judge to now have to bend and twist in response to prosecutorial uh, priorities of an administration makes it very, very difficult. And this isn't even one uh, you know, this isn't even the only example of how uh, having a court run, a by, run by a prosecutor presents problems to us. In addition to what we call essentially docket shuffling, or a colleague of mine called Enron shuffling, uh, because of the you know <laughs> the problematic nature of it, we now see the imposition of quotas on judges. So the, the administration, using the backlog as an excuse, has now imposed case completion quotas and deadlines on judges for them to be able to retain their job. This is not something you would do to a judge. You would you would certainly can have goals. I mean, we all understand mm -hmm. that we are dealing with backlogs and we want to have efficiencies, we want to have training, we want to have resources. But once you introduce quotas where you say your financial interest, your livelihood is now connected to this particular, to every case that comes before you, you are now compromising the integrity of the court. In a traditional court setting, the rules for recusal, which is removing a judge from hearing a case, mandate that any time a judge has a personal interest in a case, he or she is no longer qualified to rule on that case because 
the integrity or the impartiality of their decision making is now called into question. But we as immigration judges who are housed in the immigration court in the Justice Department don't have those protections. Mm -hmm. And that presents another set of challenges because now our judges are worried about the oath of office, which is we all took an oath of office that we're going to be impartial decision makers, having to you know, manage that with these expectations that are frankly, disconnected from the reality of our jobs, even. Mm -hmm. The numbers are even outrageously disconnected from what we're well, doing. Well, it's like in the, in the old factory setting, you would call That's it right. speed up. You would it's say- It's exactly now, what it is. Right? It's an absolute speed up. It's an When you look at it in every way, and it's an absolute speed up. And, and every time we raise the issue that a court system cannot be run like a factory, that this is, these are not widgets going through some assembly line, that every case really d requires consideration of the particular facts of the case based on the law of the case, rather than some time, you know, some stop clock going and, and counting our production for the day of production for the month. And do you think you hear from members, and I, I'm going to ask this gently, that they feel that they can't do right by that many defendants or people who are coming before them, if they're told to speed up, do you, do the, are they forced to either, I was going to say cut corners, but I mean speed it along in a way that doesn't give a full f fair hearing to everybody that comes before them. And I know to answer that is a little bit I think that is, that is exactly the challenge and that is exactly the, the, the conflict or the the problem that we raise is to say, you're, pin you're putting the judge between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. And my role as the president of our association of judges is to constantly remind our judges that the oath of office is the only thing that matters. And as long as they are true to that oath of office, which is to make sure that they make their rulings based solely on the facts of the case, based solely on the law of the case, that they put in an honest day's work, we will protect them and we will stand up for them. And that all those other pressures must just be put to the side. The problem is, of course, we're all human and pressure is going to have different um, impact on people in different way. And, and unfortunately, I think that that's exactly what the purpose of all of these pressures is to just pressure people to just push things along, to cut, to cut the hearing times, to, to force people to go through this faster, to, to essentially treat this like a factory um, floor. But, um, but so far, I, I hope that my message and our message for, for our organization to our judges has been heard that, again, true to your oath of office, true to your position as a judge, if you do that, we will protect you and the law will protect you. So now as this backlog grows, it seems to me this feeds the public perception that somehow the immigration system is quote unquote broken, meaning there's all these people, and this is a perception that nobody, the average person just hears. They absorb this from the news media. And so they think that the immigration system is out of control. There are all these people that are here illegally and that that's, they're all trying to hide. But in fact, what you're saying is that there's a system that's broken where there's all these people who are in line wanting to get their case adjudicated and they can't. And part of that's because of this policy change, right? That's right. I, certainly, I, we believe that the court system is broken, but not for the reasons that are being discussed in public. I think it's being, it's broken for the reasons that are contributing to just abuse of the system. Mm -hmm. If the court system, and you were asking me about the magic wand that I would have to fix it, and, and I think this is a pretty simple solution. It's to bring it in line with our traditional 
judicial court system, which is you remove the immigration court from the authority of the attorney general, from the executive branch, and give it the independence that it needs. Because if you have what we call structural independence, which means the court itself is not under the thumb of the prosecutor, not being used as an extension of law enforcement policies, you would then have the integrity, and then you would have the expertise of the judges and court administrators running the court. Right now, even though we've had, as I said, the largest expansion of immigration judge court in the two years, we haven't had enough support staff hired. We haven't had enough courtrooms. We just ran out of in, in money for interpreters a few weeks ago, a few weeks before the shutdown. They told us we don't have the budget for in-person interpreters for m much of our cases, which means that a case, a, a, a hearing that would take three minutes, preliminary hearing. I'm getting the case ready. We're going through some of the stages. Come in for three minutes. We we need to figure out who is this person? Do you have an attorney? What's the, What are the answers to the charges? Sort of the preliminary stages that would usually take maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. Without an in-person interpreter, it's not going to take half an hour because I have to now pick up the phone, call some sort of a customer service number for a telephonic interpreter, introduce myself, provide the the case number, provide the information for the proceedings, wait for them to find someone who's probably at home. A lot of times the person picks up the phone and they have a child screaming in the back or a dog barking in the back and, and I'm trying to conduct a, a very serious hearing. So we are dealing with challenges that, that are not just one or two uh, problems with the way that the court has been run, but it's a fundamental structural problem that can only be fixed when you remove the court from the Justice Department. So would that be creating a separate Secretary of Immigration or actually removing it from the executive branch so it would be a quasi-judicial? I'm not using the right term, but you know what I'm trying to say. Sure, sure. Uh, there are a number of different models that you can pursue. The bankruptcy court and the tax courts are two mm. that come to mind. Both of them grew out of the agency in which they were born, and both of them were ultimately separated based on the same premise, the same problem that you can't have an agency be responsible for enforcement of the law as well as adjudication of claims that are come that arise out of that enforcement. So you can have, you know, the bankruptcy court is um, sort of, it's an Article One court, which is one that's uh, created by the legislative branch, but is now run by the um, judicial branch. So it's overseen by the district court and the circuit courts. So you can have those types of model. The idea being that you need to remove it from the forces that govern our law enforcement policies. It really needs to be free from that type of influence. It needs to be perceived and run and administered as a court system in our judicial branch concepts. And Presumably what that would have is because I know a lot of my friends and people, my circle of friends, consider the system to certainly the law enforcement system to be racist, to be particularly biased towards people of color, certainly people coming from other countries. And sometimes that switches. Sometimes it's relative to the Muslim ban. Sometimes it's people coming from Mexico and Central and South America. It shifts depending on the politics of it. And what you're saying, I think, is that if you sh create a court system that's outside in some own independent way, then 
that can't be influenced that way. That the law is the law. Correct. So that's that's what I said even from the beginning mm -hmm. is that without really commenting on the wisdom of yep. any law enforcement policies or priorities, because that's not our business, the court needs to be separate and divorced from it. I mean, that's what brings integrity to the system and allows people to feel that they're getting their day in court. Due process isn't just about having a decision in your case. It's also about both perception as well as the reality of impartiality of mm -hmm. the court. Mm -hmm. So the last question I'd say is, what's your optimism level that this will happen? Is there is there a proposal that exists like this that is actually in Congress, and what's your sense of where that's going to go? Sure. So the, the groundswell of support for an independent court has been growing exponentially in the last few years, largely because of what became quite visible um, crossing of the line, so to speak, in, in use of the court in in unorthodox and indefensible ways. So now we have the Federal Bar Association, the American Bar Association, National Association of Women's Judges. I mean, we have a lot of very large, prominent bar associations who've come forward in support of art, what we call an Article I independent court. There is a proposed legislation by Federal Bar Association that has been um, introduced um, or uh, sort of been circled around on the Hill, and, and our association has endorsed that. Um, we are in support of, you know, conceptually, again, removing the court from the Justice Department and legislation that would, um, that would meet that end. In terms of my optimism, I like to be optimistic every day, otherwise... <laughs> you wouldn't go to work. I wouldn't go to work, so I like to remain optimistic. <laughs> And so the, the, you feel that the, the groundswell is there and that perhaps it's just a matter of time because, frankly, just the pressures of what's happening in the I system. Think I, I like to hope that this should really be the most bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. This isn't about being conservative or being progressive or left or right. This is really about our American democratic or judicial principles that we want to know, our people want to feel that if we are put into court proceedings, we shouldn't feel that it is being, that the strings are being pulled by, by people other than the, the judge who's supposed to be impartial. So I, I think that this should be something that to appeal to both sides of the aisle. And in many instances, when we do talk to the people on the Hill, they understand that um, it's just a matter of having the political will to, to, to make it a public statement and, and, and take it to that next level. So as I said, I'm optimistic. We're doing everything we can to educate the public so they understand these conceptual uh, problems with the court and would hopefully support having an independent court consistent with our American principles. Now it's time for our Robert Barron of the Week. And our Robert Barron is the CEO of Burgerville, Jeff Harvey. You know, it's really hard to know what Harvey makes as a salary and benefits every year because Burgerville is a privately held company. But it's safe to say he's quite wealthy. And he's quite wealthy because of the workers who make the company its profits those workers who are barely making ends meet and actually often can't make ends meet on the starvation, poverty wages they earn working at Burgerville. 
And as we heard earlier, the workers have organized legally, but Burgerville is stalling, delaying, keeping its workers in poverty. And because Burgerville is stalling and refusing to bargain in good faith, that's why Jeff Harvey, the CEO of Burgerville, is the robber baron of the week. That'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Ashley Tabador, the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, and Emmett Schlentz and James Curry of the Burgerville Workers Union. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our other sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Thanks, of course, to all our small contributors. And if you want to become one of those small contributors, please go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, go over to Patreon, and become a supporter at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Thank you.